A very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Pastor Bo Olette from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And uh, yeah, it'll be just the two of us here today. <laughs> we are so, riding solo. Well, we do have a third. Yes, if you are listening to us on Reach Radio, that will remain a mystery. But for those of you who enjoy watching us on any of our social media platforms, you can catch the joke. But with that being said, uh, note that if you want to join us, of course, is Dave Robson, who's usually hosting for us. Keep him in prayer. The I guess winter season bug is passing around hands. I may have gotten it early. I may be next in line. We will wait and see, but seems to be hitting everyone and staff at one time or another. Tony, your voice still seems impacted by it too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this weekend, uh, I led worship at the church and I was leading worship and I knew that as I led that, I didn't know if my voice was going to make it through the service. It's like, it was already so raspy before the service. And then, you know, you belt out three services of songs and anyway, here I am. Yep. Well, your sacrifice is commended and as well, your participation. (laughs) If any of you would like to send us your questions or to note for future reference where you can join us on the internet, of course, you can join us first and foremost on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you would like to join us there, note it's the Watch Live tab. Click on that, and you'll be sent to where we are streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you prefer social media, we know that YouTube isn't fond of us, but we'll use it while we can. It is A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason, F-O-R, Hope. If you subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live. And the same is true for Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you give us a like there, you'll be notified the same way. However, if you aren't notified, if we're uh, dealing with some internet shenanigans, then feel free to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Also note as well, our email address is open to you at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can feel free to use that at any time. And as well, we encourage you to utilize it both during and after the broadcast if time doesn't allow us to get to your question or if you'd like follow-ups that helps keep it nice and organized for us and able to effectively minister to you. So note that Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Our website is Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be able to join us there. And our email address is questions, the questions are plural, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. And we've got a lot of questions lined up, speaking of our email addresses, and want to give as much time as they are due, which is plenty, but also, as uh, the reformer Martin Luther once said, i got so many things to do today, I bet I'll spend (laughs) half of it in prayer. We don't want to say a single word before we give the time to the Lord. So, Bo, want to start us off with that? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you so much for our time together. And uh, whether our voices are are uh, on par with where they need to be or if they're a little weak, Lord, we know that uh, really what it's all about is you and about glorifying you. And, and we pray that you use our bodies and our minds now to open up your word and and share it. And we pray that you would give us the uh, wisdom uh, to utilize your scriptures and yield your scriptures properly. Uh, we thank you so much that um, 
you give us this platform. We thank you so much for the people that uh, participate in this uh, this program. And we pray that you would be honored and blessed through everything that's done and said. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. So with that <clears throat> rapid-fire succession being said, yes. uh, let's get to your questions. Uh, starting us off, we have a question from Jessica, who, and uh, I don't know if this was meant to be anonymous, you wasn't mentioned, but the question is, where the word pharmacy got its origin, can drugs be a doorway to demonic activity, or in parentheses, something along those lines, and is there any resources you can point her to that elaborate on this topic? The reason is given that a younger sister of hers is taking a lot of medication, I hear you, and uh, believes it's uh, influencing her in a negative way. She admits to hearing mm. voices telling her she needs to hurt someone, mm. for example. Uh, they'd like to encourage their mother to take her off this medication and would like to point out the spiritual implications these may have. Well, thank you for sharing with us, Jessica, and I'm very sorry to hear that that's your situation and your sister's. Um, obviously, the first thing that we need to clarify is that we're not trained psychologists or, uh, you know, uh, counselors in that regard. We aren't professionally trained in this sort of field. And we're not even playing one. No, and we <laughs> want to make sure that as we're dealing with this topic, we're clarifying this as a issue of theology, not of medicine. Right. So yeah. when we're dealing with this topic, obviously I can speak from experience. I was put on a lot of medication dealing with things that weren't caused by, but we're dealing with those things mentally. I made a decided physical and mental sacrifice in choosing to not depend on pharmaceutical medication and coping with my mental disorders, professionally diagnosed, by the way. And, of course, it's not always roses and peaches. But when we're dealing with the situation, obviously three things need to be taken into consideration is what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what the ultimate goal of what we're doing is. And those can be intertwined, if you will. But going at this from our field, which is theology, we first should obviously answer your first question, which was, where does the word pharmacy get its name? And the word is Greek, pharmakia, which means sorcery or something used to alter the senses. Now, this in of itself, Bo, is not bad, correct? The idea of using something natural, something herbal, to alter your senses is not something in of itself evil in Scripture, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so if we go, for instance, to Proverbs chapter 31, it notes a recommendation for someone who is perishing to be given strong drink so that he would not feel it. But wine yeah. is not meant for rulers because they have to have their faculties to make decisions. So it's not the fact that your senses are being dulled, and obviously the Proverbs aren't suggesting, here, just get that guy possessed. So let's first clarify that. The second thing that we need to keep in mind when it comes to the pharmaceuticals is that there were two sources of pharmaceutics in the ancient world. There were apothecaries, licensed dealers of pharmacies, and there were witches, which is an illegal apothecary. We think of Satan worshipers and occultic practice, human sacrifice. Sometimes it included that, but it was always associated with the using of hallucinogenics and mind-altering drugs for either religious or social purposes. We talked about this on our Halloween lock-in with the student ministry. 
So keeping that all in mind, there is a good and a bad way to distribute these things. And obviously, we can't stress enough that what makes something demonic isn't the nature of the thing, it's the message behind it. Mm -hmm. So if the message of those drugs is, this is my answer, the message of those drugs is, this is my substitute for the Holy Spirit's influence on my life, this is how I have peace, this is how I have purpose, this is what I get up for in the morning, to quote the comedian Jim Gaffigan, this is the only thing I like about being alive, that's the problem. It's been made into an idol. But once again, it's the treatment, the message behind the thing, not the thing itself, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. And there's there's something, I think, in that. And, and there is some fine lines here that I think of. And, but first of all, when it comes to this word, like I look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 15. It says, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexual immoral, the murderers. Well, that... That magic arts, it's that's rendered that in the NIV version. In the in the King James Version, we see that outside are um, dogs and the sorcerers. It's translated sorcerers. If you look up that word in the Greek, you see it is this farm 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 pharmakia pharmakia word. Um, there's um, sorry, I kind of had a little bit of a, a, little, a little stutter there, but yeah, that pharmakia. And I don't see anywhere in the scripture, and maybe you could help me uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't remember any scripture in the New Testament where the translation of pharmakia is actually a positive. I can't um, think of one, but it's always noted in the context the abuse of said narcotics is what's being condemned, just like mm -hmm. wine is given in a positive and yeah. a negative sense. The goal is to understand its purpose and not its abuse yeah so like sorcery like it's translated usually sorcery that i because of its because of and this is the point i think that you're getting at is that the reason why it's sorcery is because in the ancient world when it came to sorcery it was very much linked to practices of drug taking yeah and so there's this connection there so the word just meaning sorcery, but we have to ask the question is what is what is, what was sorcery about in the ancient world? And that's where you're getting into witches, occult practices, things like that. And so you have to ask the question today, like, okay, is the drug I'm taking, is it is it in that kind of vein? Is it really about that kind of idea of sorcery, yeah. you know, of the ancient world? Or am I taking it for uh, a healing, you know, point of view? Is that the goal of it? Um, I don't think people that are taking um, medicines are thinking about the occult or thinking about um, worshiping, you know, the the rock outside. Usually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but there are still. Um, groups and practices that very much relate um, or there's a relation between their worship of gods or goddesses or whatever and taking partaking of some kind of drug that alters their state of mind 
Yeah, but obviously and, to answer the first quarter of your question, Jessica, your yeah. sister's not doing this for religious purposes. It's done for medicinal ones. So the purpose needs to be clarified into the second part of your question, which is, does this open up doorways to the demonic? And the answer is clearer than it's made out to be as long as you're consistent with what that means. Something that's demonic isn't always involving possession. It's always involved in deception. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is always our go-to with this. It notes that the coming of the lawless one, that's a reference to the final, ultimate, capital A, Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. Okay, what is that? With all signs, power, and lying wonders. And then goes on not to describe lightning and, you know, parting of oceans and all that other stuff. The wonders are in this idea of a fundamental and a deliberate rejection of the truth. And as a result, God handing them over to a lie because they had no love for the truth. So that's what needs to be kept in mind, Jessica, and keep this in mind in regards to your perspective of your sister as well. The idea that, and again, speaking from experience, your brain activity causing you to experience REM sleep when you hear and see things in your dreams, that would be literally the same thing as the sort of hallucinations that a paranoid schizophrenic or whatever side effects of your uh, of the medicine that your sister's going through, those are what's happening in a physical sense. You're just dreaming with your eyes open. Most of the time, if you're experienced with it, you can tell the difference between reality and what isn't, but sometimes you're just so tired of making the distinction that that's when things become dangerous. The point, though, being made is this. The deception is what makes something demonic. Obviously, there are specific instances where demons can take over somebody, but we emphasize this verb, <laughs> like a beating drum. In 1 John chapter 4, it notes explicitly that the one who belongs to Jesus cannot be possessed, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we know that the wicked one does not touch him. Now, people try to play fast and loose with that to sell books and promote ministries, but the point being made in Scripture is very, very clear. Every time someone was delivered of a demonic, not just oppression, but a uh, possession, literally, I guess I won't look for a, a synonym there, they didn't have a prior relationship with God. And as a result of their deliverance, it was then replaced with a relationship with God, never to return to that state again. That's the positive note we need to make. The second aspect we need to acknowledge is that of all the times that someone was involved in the demonic, it was just a bad situation they were in. It doesn't go on to say, and it was because they smoked the ganja or they hung out with Bob Marley or Snoop Dogg for a weekend. You know, It's <laughs> emphasizing the point that this is where they were at spiritually, and Jesus was not only the solution to that, but restored and filled the gap. He even told a parable about a uh, spirit that was cast out. The place was swept clean, but it wasn't reoccupied. The spirit came back and said, I'll bring seven more spirits worse than I. And it was worse if he had not reformed himself, gotten rid of the one spirit, and brought back in seven worse spirits. The emphasis we need to make on spirit isn't to focus on the devil. It's to emphasize the truth from the not truth, the deception from the, well, from reality, from the Lord. So that's what needs to be kept in mind, and that's a struggle for a lot of people with either A, mental disorders, or B, 
overwhelmed with the kind of side effects that naturally come with messing with this brain chemistry. It's not an exact science. And again, speaking from experience, I can say this with authority. Most of the time, the psychologists that are diagnosing, or not diagnosing, that are treating these are just seeing what happens. There is a general way that some symptoms can be alleviated by lowering or increasing certain chemicals in your mind through these medications, but it comes at a cost because your brain's a very complicated and very well-designed machine. Messing with it has, of course, long-term side effects and uh, short-term as well that I can tell that you see in your sister. So that's what brings us to the third aspect of this. When we're talking about recommendations to your mother and to her, the concern about voices and uh, them telling her that she needs to hurt someone, obviously unnerving, but once again, that is a very common side effect of most mind not altering but numbing medication because when your adrenaline's trying to compensate and ends up hitting a brick wall, when it finally breaks through, it gets pretty intense. And as we know, if you remember any of your dreams or you've experienced a dream where you're aware of something, it's borderline your day on puree just thrown into a blender. It's not always your thoughts, just what you've taken in that day or the last couple months maybe processing its way through your imagination. But the point being made is this, and I'm using vague terms, not psychological. Point being made, though, is this. Jessica, obviously, the best case scenario is for your sister and whatever she's going through to be able to get through it through counseling and her own care. And it's the same in physical, like body-based medicine as well. Doctors don't cure you. They equip your body or enable it to cure itself. And the same is also true in the mind. If you're put in a situation you can process the deception properly, you can focus back on reality, like I'm dependent on every day, then you can distance yourself from that medication. But we also don't want to take the place of professionals and say that the condition of your sister is the same as every other. There are people with real issues that need that kind of lowering. The issue is when it's treated in every case. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think where a lot of um, our concern always comes as Christians is, you know, not being, you know, we tainted by the world. That's kind of a lot of what comes through our minds when it comes to this idea of pharmakeia. Um, because a lot of times in church circles, you know, that idea is emphasized, you know, pharmakeia, pharmakeia, you know, the pharmacy, you know, drugs, they open up a door. And you hear that a lot, you know, in the Christian culture, you know, drugs open up a door to the spirit realm. And, and the idea is that it's very biblically linked to magicians. Again, all the, the usage of this term sorcery, um, pharmakeia is always talking about, you know, this kind of, you know, sorcery. It's talking about uh, the occultic kind of practices. A chemically deceiving of yourself. That's and right. These guys are, without a doubt, con men who are taking advantage of that that's and profiting right. from it. Yeah, moving you away from the things of God. And that's really the pull, is moving you away from the truths of Scripture. And this is where that deception comes in of the adversaries. If we're if we're partaking of drugs, and really that word pharmakeia, when you look at just the origins of it, it just it, it just can mean drug, you know. 
but it's always in use of this idea of magician, sorcery, that kind of idea. So it's not just the drug itself, but it's association with moving away from the truths of God. Which is the message, and that's what we need to be concerned and about. And so, yeah, so that's really what you have to look at is like, hey, am I, am I taking something that's moving me away from, from God? Meaning, uh, am I taking something and I'm starting to worship other things? I want to worship other, you know, the, not the true and living God. I'm moving away from Jesus. It's moving. Or it's just got me so doped out that I just can't bother to pursue a relationship God's word with God or at all. With you know, yeah. then you know, and that's it. We don't want to. You know, we have to just look at our our ability to worship the Lord, and that's really got to be the um, kind of the benchmark when it comes to this shit. This you know, this idea of taking medication and that thing, you know, th those things is, you know, is it, is it, you know, is it something that is really an occultic practice or is it something that's really just being used to help me out, you know, with my, with my medical condition? Yeah. yeah. And again, uh, any notes from our guest here? No. All right. So we'll, we'll just continue on with the point, but just to recap, Jessica, again, we're addressing this theologically, not medically. Yeah. We emphasize the definition of pharmakia. It does come from that, and it is in reference to occultic practices, but not exclusively. There were proper ways to approach medicine, even in Scripture, and we noted the Proverbs, that the nature of something being demonic isn't in always possession, but deception, and we base that on Scripture. And, of course, when it comes to recommendations you would make for your mom, we wouldn't say that it has spiritual implications every time, but we do acknowledge that there is a price to pay when you take this route, and if you can seek alternatives, please do, especially at that age. Mm. So with that said, uh, got some questions coming along to us from social media, so let's waste no time. Um, Bear wants to know, is there any book or scripture you would recommend to study for new fathers? Thank you for the program. Oh man, mm. you, you're uh, here a moment too early, Peter Martin himself, uh, He's been a daddy. He had a daughter, but yeah. he became a father recently. Mm -hmm. uh, you're experiencing that department, Bo. Any scriptures that God spoke to you when Bo James came into the world or uh, books that you recommend for him? Well, I, I think the, the, the book that comes to my mind is the Proverbs and is that if there's a book that probably you want to read as a father, it's got to be that book. And because it's the only book that I know off the top of my head of the scriptures that is specifically um, referencing its point is being from a father to a son. Mm -hmm. The first nine chapters specifically. Right. And so it's, it's good, obviously, to start there. And um, I think as a, as a dad, you know, in reading those scriptures, it gives you a good understanding of what you're always wanting to do as a dad. You're always wanting to point your kid to God. And, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, you know, come the issues of life, spring forth the issues of life. What a wonderful passage to be able to heart go. your heart, yeah. Yeah, is, is man, that's, that's great, you know. You know, Proverbs chapter one in and of itself is just a gem, to read over, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And uh, so I think as a young father, or as just a father in general, that would be a book that you want to read and 
kind of get some really good principles under your belt. So when your kid grows up, um, you, you know, you kind of know where to direct them. Okay. And any uh, books outside of scripture that you'd recommend, uh, insights that you'd give? Um, for fatherhood? Um, that's a good one. I'll have to think about it for a minute. All right. Well, we will permit that and uh, get back to you, Bear, but let us know if that's any help. And of course, you got any follow-up questions or specific proverbs, specific issues, we'd be happy to address those as well. But uh, congratulations on being a new dad. It is a ministry you have to be called to. Um, question from Thomas, who wants to know, how do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet by experience? I noted as I read scripture, the prophecies of old went through exactly or something similar that Jesus was going through or that we will go through during Revelation. Uh, example, David was betrayed by betrayed and Jesus was betrayed, prophecy fulfilled. And that, that's not really a prophecy. Foreshadowings are different, but we'll continue. Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. We'll talk about Genesis 22 is definitely prophetic, but we'll uh, get into that in spelling. Jesus was the sacrifice. Why did God do it this way? Was David the epiphany of Jesus? Was uh, he gets to rule and reign during the millennium? Why David? Thanks. Okay, so there's like eight questions. Yeah, there was a lot there. <laughs> How do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? Let's start there. First of all, any spokesman of God, that's what a prophet means, someone who speaks on behalf of another, is going to be judged by the first model. Now, in a sense, Adam was a prophet. Yeah, he was seers. A, they were called seers in the past. Yeah, they were representatives of God to their families in the form of priests. We can tell that from Genesis chapter 3, where it notes that when, or Genesis 4 rather, when Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices, they didn't just make that up. They learned it from someone who first, then their old man. It's an inference, but a fair one, and we can verify it through Hebrews 11 as well. But the point being made is this, the first person in history that God spoke to us through in writing, which is what prophets today would be claiming in that sense, a scripture-level prophet, had to be judged, and every one of the 40 authors of scripture were held to this standard by four fundamental rules. You can note this in many passages in scripture, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, also cross-examined and defining like Moses in the last chapter of Deuteronomy. We can note Acts chapter 1 and how it was applied in the early church and how they were held to that standard, plus some specifics as far as being eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry from the time of John the Baptist all the way to his ascension into heaven. That's what made you an apostle and a prophet, New Testament sense-wise. But four standards made you on par with Moses and worth listening to as speaking the word of God. The first was that they had to be accurate. They would be accurate in the information that they gave, that if God's going to speak factual statements, not things that we can't verify, but things that we can, he's not going to make blatant errors. Now note, there are mistranslations at times or handlings of passages where, for example, it notes the city of Ramses, as it was known at the time of the translation. It was actually a varus during the time of Moses, but that's not an anachronism. That's just good geography. The second, of course, on top of accuracy that got us to get his facts straight is that they would also have to be consistent, that if they spoke in the name of another God or they spoke something about God, but something's really off here, a fundamental conflict with his nature, that he's showing mercies to thousands and restoring generations. He says, hey, if an Edomite or a, um, what was it, uh, the 
nations around you, the Egyptians, uh, were to come into the house of the Lord, the third generation, they're welcome in, you were suddenly to say, no, Hagen is ever allowed, it's only the people of God. Well, they'd be speaking falsely, they'd be in direct conflict with God's nature of restoration, but also of limits to those who would reject him in their heart. Uh, the point of emphasis is just that. You need to have a consistent picture of God as well as an accurate giving of information from him. The third is that you would have to be accountable to the information that you gave. If you failed the first or second in any way, they would not only be judged by people who took the word of God seriously, but were living in a land where that would be happily enforced. If you were to lie in the name of God or to make declarations about God that came false, you would die. And that is not obviously an encouragement to people who would want to copycat false prophets around them. It would be a deterrent. The fourth and the most significant is that before you were taken seriously, God would back up his words with deeds. A true prophet is always going to perform some sort of sign in order to verify his message's source. And we see this especially during the ministry of Jesus, but also during the times of Moses, Elijah, Nehemiah, and so forth. So the point of, or Elijah rather, the point being made is this. If someone's going to speak from God, they're putting themselves not only on a target, but literally under the most strict standards possible, putting their own lives into their hands, unless they absolutely knew for certain that this was coming from the Lord. Every single time that someone spoke prophecy or claimed that this is prophecy, they would be held to the standard and they would either be killed or they would have it added to Scripture. And note that was judged by someone who put his cards on the table first, the signs, the miracles, the wonders of Moses. That's why they took him seriously, on top of God appearing in a limited sense of glory on the mountain. So the point being made is just that. Why do you take these guys seriously? Because they're accurate, they're consistent, they're accountable, and they backed up miracles. Oh, they're claims with miracles. That's how you judge a true prophet in that sense, not by experience. Um, you mentioned prophecies about Jesus, though. Uh, David was not a archetype or a uh, foreshadowing of Jesus in a direct sense. Obviously, there are very significant ties to King David that you would identify the Messiah through, but a direct prophecy would be, for example, in 2 Samuel, I believe, chapter 7, where the prophet Nathan, not David, the prophet Nathan, emphasizes to him that God has not only recognized your line as the rightful successor to King, da or to King Saul, but you are going to be the one who the Lord will build a house for forever. He rightly understood this to be a reference to Genesis 3, the uh, anointed one who would restore Israel and all of mankind back to God forever. He would be a king, a priest, and a prophet. The interesting thing as well is when we go to Genesis 22, we aren't just given association with the Messiah. Obviously, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those were relatives of Jesus. But the foreshadowings and types, Isaac asked his father a specific question in Genesis 22. He says, there's the wood, there's the you know, fire, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham prophesied, not only in Genesis, but also it emphasizes in Hebrews and in Romans, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. After the incident, you remember the angel of the Lord, we believe that as Jesus, uh, told Abraham, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Note that point. 
he goes on to say that on the mount of the Lord, on this mountain, it will be established, it will be fulfilled. So we don't just look for vague associations and say, oh, that was fulfilled in Jesus. No, it was a good example, and we judge Jesus by that. But if you hear a prophecy, it's going to speak about it in the sense that this is going to happen so that it might be fulfilled. And obviously, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's not subtle about this, but I'd go to Isaiah before Second Samuel when prophecies took place. And again, David himself was identified as a prophet in uh, First Kings, but that's in a reference to the Psalms. The point being made, though, is this. If someone's going to claim a prophecy or I have a new word of the Lord from you and it's not verified through what God already has revealed, you can judge them as a false prophet by those same standards. Now, it doesn't mean you go back and kill them with rocks, but it means that you don't listen to them, as Deuteronomy itself also acknowledges. God's going to be accurate. God's going to be consistent. God's going to hold his prophets accountable. We could note that in a future tense for those in the church, more directly in the book of Acts. And, of course, that he's going to back up his words with deeds. We don't see that kind of ministry today, but we do see people teaching the word of God accurately and effectively. And this is a form of the gift of prophecy talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read that on your own time in the ways that's expressed. But anyone who accurately teaches from the Word of God is being given a gift by the Holy Spirit, or if they're a poor teacher promoting false doctrines like cult groups, then you could know that they will be accountable to God for that, and of course that it's not going to match spiritual mustard, if you will. I said mustard intentionally. <laughs> Point is made, made to a joke. Um, continuing on, though, as far as the why he gets to rule during the millennial kingdom, why David? He said he would. <laughs> There's not much else to act like. Uh, that's, I guess, too much beyond the realm of imagination. Ezekiel 41 through 44 makes a promise that not only through David, but to David, he would be the prince who would rule from Jerusalem in the time that we see after the events we associate with the millennium are taking place. But the point being made is, like, what made David more worthy? What made David the super king when we honestly look at his life and he was just as bad as anyone else? Bo, uh, I'll pass this on to you. As far as the reasons why any of us are given any calling or honor before (laughs) God— Is it because of our merit or because he's just that good to us? Yeah, it's just, it's simply because he's that awesome to us. And obviously King David is a great example of that. Um, You know what, you know what might be a cool answer? uh, Another kind of, I guess, caveat to that, that question about King David is why God chose King David um, is that, you know, back in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob did bless his sons. He talked about, you know, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until comes to whom it belongs, and obedience of the nations is his. You know, Judah was to be, um, and this is a prophecy. Yes. That's, it, that's through Joseph, Ju- or uh, Jacob rather, leaning on his staff, prophesied and said to his sons, it lets you know. Yeah, so this is a prophecy about Judah, the tribe of Judah. And that it would be through the tribe of Judah that the leadership of Israel would really uh, stem through mm-hmm. and, and work through. And so the scriptures already tell us that Judah was going to be the tribe that would be raised up to uh, watch and that the rulers would come through the tribe of Judah. How special would this tribe be? Obviously, very special. 
you know, and that there would be a special person that would come through this tribe. And, and so, you know, why is it King David? Maybe it's because King David was, um, you know, the lowliest of his family. Maybe it's simply because God was making the point that the humble shall be exalted and that those who are exalted, in a sense, Saul, you know, the, the people's choice for king shall be humbled. Yeah, and this isn't to and, say that he and, always got things and, right. He had moments no. of arrogance as well in the census that he took, oh, and he was judged for it. Oh, yeah. But the, the point you have to emphasize on this issue in any prophetic sense is noting the goodness of God isn't handed out on the basis of anyone's merit apart from God's. Yeah. And we're told David was a man after God's own heart. That throws some people for a loop because they say, oh, so that means that, you know, what we're going to get into and some questions as far as how he handled his family, yeah. the, uh, the manipulation. Yeah, he perhaps. was a perfect guy or something. Yeah, that he God approved everything that he did. What yeah. would that mean that he was a man after God's own heart? Yeah, well, it, it means that God's heart is concerned about God and about God's name. And if you, if you read the Bible, it seems like God's very concerned about his name and his glory. And when you read about King David in the Psalms, that's where we really get his heart. You really see that King David is right there. He desires above all things that God get glory and that God's righteousness is exalted, whether it's through his judgment mm -hmm. or whether it's through his mercy. Yeah. You know? And so that's why David is a man after God's own heart is and and maybe why he is a picture of Christ in that way, and that Jesus is concerned about who? The Father. And about the Father's name. And what's yeah. the spirit interested in? The Son. What's the son in, or what's the father interested in? The sending of a spirit to glorify the son. That's right. So when you hear skeptics say, oh, isn't God egomaniacal and self-obsessed? If you deny Trinitarianism, <laughs> but we have the greatest possible being focusing not just on himself, quote unquote, but, but within unity, himself is being selfless. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which is just a phenomenal theology, phenomenal doctrine. I mean, in and of itself. And, um, and, if God is the ultimate being, then it would go figure that God isn't going to compromise his being. His hisness. His hisness, that's right. And, you know, David's concerned about that. David even prays in ways that are so cool of like, God, I don't want your name to be like messed up because of my sin. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the heart I think every Christian should have. You know, for sure. But I think in that way, he's, 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 he's like Jesus in that way. One thing I would say, too, is that when you think about prophets, a lot of times we kind of um, don't realize something about prophets, and that is um, prophets are a real grace from God in the scriptures because without prophets, people would be literally abandoned from the knowledge of God, the understanding of God. And, and this is what the Old Testament shows is that there is a distance between God, uh, holy God, and fallen mankind, human beings. All humans are fallen. And therefore, there is a, 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 a separation. 
not only a separation, but there's like a literally, we are absolutely clueless as far as the revelation of God. We need help. And this is where the grace of prophets come in in the scripture. They are people that are to communicate God's word, God's thoughts, um, God's ways with the people. You know, where would we be without these these prophets? Um, really, the, the people of Israel would be absolutely, utterly lost as far as the knowledge of, of, uh, of God. And this is why the scriptures say in the book of Romans, when Paul's writing, he says, hey, we are the people. Israel is the people who has the prophets. He talks about that. We have the scriptures. You know, we have the writings of Moses, but we have, we have the insights. We've been given the insights. What a grace from God. So when you think of prophets, you have to think of this is, those are grace gifts from, from God to us, to the people for sure. You know, a lot of times we think that prophets were prophets by effort. You know, like you're saying, like they're prophets because they were, you know, just prophets by effort. They went to the right school, but no, it's a grace. It was a grace that they were prophets. It was something God did beautifully in them to open up uh, the nation's eyes, the nation of Israel's eyes to the true and living God and the knowledge of the true and living God. Same for kings and the same for priests as well. Yeah, and I, I would, I think lastly, because the question was so thorough, is that you might want to look at Hebrews chapter um, yeah, 11. Um, I would say, I was going to think chapter 7 and talk about Melchizedek just being a yeah. type of Christ. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that, um, you know, there's a, there's a place in the New Testament where someone brings up a character of the Old Testament and says, like the son of God. Yeah, and obviously it's not to say they are him, but we no. want to emphasize the yeah. point. If there is going to be that parallel or they were intended to be a fulfillment, a foreshadowing of him, it'll tell you. Yeah, right. That's right. And that's why I want to just, to, you can look at it and it says in chapter seven and verse, uh, what is it? Verse three of the passage in Hebrews, you know, without beginning of days or end, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So it's, it's, it is, the scriptures is telling you when something is, you know, in the Old Testament that's pointing to Jesus. Yeah, how could you be a priest but not from the tribe of Levi? Look at Melchizedek. Look at Melchizedek. And uh, there's one more clarification from Thomas. He wanted to know when uh, David prophesied of them, um, for my clothing they cast lots, they had my garments divided among them. Yeah. Uh, how did David know this was going to happen to Jesus? And the answer is he didn't. When we're talking about prophecy, 2 Peter 1 and 1 Timothy 3 are very explicit in noting they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, there were incidents in David's yeah. life where he experienced literally the robbing and the distributing of all of his goods when he was kicked out in a question we'll deal with in a moment, uh, among horrible things happening to his wives, to his home, to everything that was going on as well. But the loss of personal property, that was something that he was familiar with. But when he drew specific attention to it in what you're referencing, Psalm 22, uh, that was directed, we believe, by the Holy Spirit, that he guided David's thoughts and experiences in order to give a foreshadowing of Jesus, not just in broad senses, but in explicit detail that the gospel authors are very good at letting us know was spoken for this reason so that we wouldn't miss the messiah when he came so yeah it's not uh, david getting lucky it's of course the spirit directing him but if on the other hand we note 
well, can't you just grant the possibility? Not to this degree. And you can look up plenty of resources that go into the Messianic prophecies. These get absurdly specific. Micah 5.2 is one of my favorites if skeptics try to say, well, just in vague generalities. Okay, where's the Messiah going to be born? Bethlehem Ephrathah, that specific place, even though it was the least of all the uh, cities of Judah, out of you will come one who's going forth from old, from everlasting. How do you specify not just that city, the house of bread, but that county, to use the modern term, specifying that this is where Messiah would be born? That's not, oh, well, you know, David was from Bethlehem, and you know he probably just made the association. Uh-uh, Micah was 400 years later. Your move. Or 200 years later. So <laughs> let us know if that helps, Thomas. Um, going on, though, uh, we've got about 15 minutes. Frank wanted to know in Zechariah 3, when the angel of the Lord um, was defending the high priest Joshua, who was Satan accusing in that passage? Jesus, the high priest himself. Um, it was specifically addressing the accusations were against the high priest Joshua, who was the high priest serving at the time of Zechariah, Haggai. Ezra was believed to be alive at this time as well, and Nehemiah's earthly ministry. Uh, the high priest Joshua was brought before the Lord in, we'll just say filthy rags. In the original Hebrew, it's a lot more graphic than that, but let's just say he looked gross. And Satan is accusing him before the Father. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now notice the angel of the Lord identifies the object not as, are not I a brand plucked from the fire, to answer Satan's accusations, is not this. Then he took the filthy clothes from from Joshua and then put on him clean robes and a turban. That was the mark of authority for a priest. So, yeah, it was uh, the high priest Joshua at the time that was serving. Frankly, yeah, and, and I, I can see the correlation in the person's question, though, because I, I think, uh, you know, when we when we study Zechariah, we know that uh, Joshua, Yahshua, is Jesus. That's his earthly name. Yeah, the, yeah and so I, I think maybe, like, if I was, I, I, might, I, might, have, I might have the question wrong, but I, I wouldn't want a person to think that the Yahshua that's being spoken of in chapter 3 of Zechariah is like a foreshadowing of Jesus. No, he was the high priest serving at the time. Joshua is a very common name. That's why they specify even in the Gospels, this was Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, it's absolutely. This is a historical person. There are places, I would say, in the book of Zechariah that definitely are pointing to this play on Joshua. And... Um, that are very interesting. And um, the name is specifically the prophecies concerning the branch um, in the book of Zechariah and uh, being, you know, the name Yahshua. And I think, I think you can find some interesting ideas here in the book of Zechariah that are so specific as to the name of the branch. The name of the branch would be Yahshua, that, that it wouldn't surprise anybody <laughs> when the Messiah really came on the scene, you know, born by Mary, you know, of the Holy Spirit, that his name would be Yahshua. And there were, of course, other you know, prophecies in Isaiah saying he would be Emmanuel, but the idea of multiple names as identifiers rather than identities that's right. is very common in Jewish culture. Yeah, but so it may be in, in your study of Zechariah, you're getting that a little confused where there are passages that are dealing specifically with the historical 
Yahshua. And then there are passages that are very future tense talking about the branch and the name and uh, linked to Joshua. And it'll specify in the latter days or yeah. there is a coming one and he will be called, you know, the Lord is our righteousness and so forth. That's right. So just look for those, I guess, little points in the scripture. Sometimes, you know, when you're reading it, the more you read it, the more you go, oh, I see the little signs, you know, the little pointers, you know, but... That's a great question. I really, I love that section. That's an amazing section. All right, anything to add? No? All right. Um, we'll uh, continue on. Uh, yeah. Question from Dwayne, who wants to know, what does the Bible mean by don't put evil before your eyes? Uh, that's referencing Psalm 101. Uh, let me read the section leading up to it. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, this is verse 6, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way shall serve me. Oh, uh, excuse me, I jumped my uh, role there. Let me start in verse 2. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works with deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked from the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is a psalm of David, and he's making a point of saying that in the flow of the whole conversation, a contrast between what he wants to do and what not he wants to do. I want to be the one who's not looking for evil, not speaking of evil, not doing things that are evil. I want to speak truth, not lies. I want to look at good things, not evil things. It's an idea of not setting yourself up to do stupid things. We obviously have a very direct access to putting evil before our eyes and forms of media and entertainment. There are things that will outright stumble us, violence, sex, drugs, the, you name the like. But the idea that David's making in Psalm 103, and you or Psalm 101 and verse 3, is a continuation of the whole flow. He's making a contrast between godly conduct and his. Uh, New Testament example and explanation of it would probably be in Paul's letters, where he says, uh, do not uh, make provision for your flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is true in any of the five senses. The eyes are just one of them. Yeah, I think uh, I, I do think that the scriptures tend to have these. Um, I don't know if you call them euphemisms, or maybe that's the correct word. Where it's it uses like um, you know the eyes is kind of like um, a way of saying you know uh, you know to direct you know your whole body into. Um, a certain a particular area so like you know setting your eyes on things that are evil is is obviously not it's not talking about so much your literal eyeballs like ever seeing something bad but it's the whole body it's like you know when jesus says you know your eyes are the lamp to the whole body kind of idea it's that 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 idea of there's it's moving everything in you you know you're really partnering with something you're really moving with it you know, um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that you would call that a euphemism or not, but uh, the way you're talking about the eyes, you know, it's just really talking about the whole body 
But you see that in the scriptures quite a bit, referring to the eyes, you know, not moving, not partnering, not going in that direction. I wouldn't want anybody to think like that that means, you know, um, like you can't see something that's bad and you go like, oh my gosh, like I looked at something evil, God's against me, that kind of thing. No, that's not what the idea is there. Um, you know, like like in the book of Habakkuk, it says God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Which doesn't mean that he's unable to see them, that's, but he doesn't look at it with approval. The same idea of Job where he says, I made a covenant with, with my, my eyes. eyes not to look upon a woman unjust. Yeah, and I think you got to see it in that way, like the, the, like Habakkuk, you know, in the way he's talking about God. Yeah, I, I hate those who do evil. I hate the wicked way. I want to be with you because I see where the wicked are going. Right. God doesn't partner with evil. Yeah. So... All right, a uh, question from Ian. He wants to know, is it possible to listen to false doctrine without being deceived, the idea of chewing the meat, spitting out the bones, or is it uh, always a corrupting influence you want to avoid? His example is that people who get saved even in ministries of false teachers. Now, yeah, uh, Ian, there's nothing outright corrupting by hearing false doctrine as long as you have well shored up in yourself the truth to answer it. Uh, for example, I've read the Quran, the Hadith, the Sunnah. I've read the you know the Satanist Bible. I've read the Book of Shadows by Gerald Gardner. I've gone through these letters and these books in order to informatively say I don't believe this. Now, no, my heart was prepared in advance and saying I'm not taking Levay's approach toward hedonism seriously. I just want to see his worldview. I don't want to convert to Islam. I want to know where and how it distorts my scriptures and inspires people to oppress each other in this way. I want to know the truth about a lie, <laughs> and that's the sort of mindset you want. Now, obviously, you need to parse out your time wisely. You don't want to spend more time in the Quran or the Book of Shadows than you do in Scripture, but as long as you know the truth, then you can judge evil. And there is, of course, an emphasis in Scripture to be simple concerning the things that are evil, but be wise in what is good. That's not necessarily saying you're not allowed to read anything that's not godly, but the point being made is understand that it's not godly and why. I think as long as that's held in check, you won't be you know, caught up. In yeah, and I just, to, just to say this too, the Christian era is not a dumbing down era. The Christian era is an intellectual era, meaning it's one of growing intellectually, um, growing in our understanding. Why? Because the writing, the writer of most of the New Testament was a scholar, was someone who quoted non-scriptural um, poems and writings, and and he used it for a specific purpose. But the point is, is that he knew them, and he knew how to utilize them properly. And so we have to look at Second Corinthians chapter ten that talks about, hey, we're going to demolish any argument that comes against. The scriptures, that's what we do. But it doesn't mean that we don't take it in, or, but we bring it before our minds, the things that we read, and we, we put it into, in a sense, we judge it with the scripture. What does the scripture say about that? So Christianity is not a dumbing down era um, of history. It is actually one that is very scholarly of growing in our understanding of all things, math, philosophy, 
things like that, but we bring it before the scriptures. Yeah, and obviously I'm pursuing those things, me personally, because I'm called to engage with those kinds of people. If you're not, I wouldn't, I'd be wiser with your time. Know the truth, you'll spot a lie. Yeah. Um, question from Kenny, who wants to know, did God set us up to sin because he was bored? Uh, when it comes to what God did or didn't do, we need to understand who God is by nature and then see if that uh, block fits into the circle or the square, so to speak. Yeah. First of all, James is very explicit. God does not tempt, nor is he tempted by evil. So to say he's the cause of evil would be in conflict with who he is by definition. Secondly, we look at the account and we make the logical fallacy of attributing motive. God set Adam and Eve up for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, he made both trees, the tree of life and every tree of the garden, just as appealing as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a moral opportunity to do the right thing and fully equipped to do so, given that they had complete and total and regular access to God. We can't say that he set them up. He allowed them to make a mistake. And note the fact that the mistake had consequences does not mean that in the long term he said the ends justify the means. I once again have to say, does that fit with what I know about God? We've got about 30 seconds, so I can't go into this as much as I would like, but I recommend you look up Reasonable Faith, William Lane Craig. He gave an answer to the four kinds of world God could have made and the information we have in order to reconcile all this nonsense uh, that's not in the text but is thrown our way in opposition to it. Also note, if uh, we didn't get to your question, I know we have one or two, uh, email them to us. The music's starting, so we'll be able to check in with you all again next time. Uh, thank you, Bo, and thank you, our special guest, for joining us on A Reason for Hope. We will be here again tomorrow, hopefully with uh, more familiar faces. I know the elder will be back, and uh, Dave hopefully will be on the mend, but we want to make sure he's fully before getting back into the fold. Keep him in your prayers. Thank you for continuing to have us in our prayers. We'll see you all next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.